0: Yes, this is a love story. We know that this is going to be a will they or will they not get together type of romance. But what's it actually about? What's going to become more than just what happens on the page? How do we start to dig into why do we care about what happens on the page? And in this case, Ugly Love is a book about coming to terms with the past and overcoming your fears. It shows us that it's okay to be afraid. It shows us that it's okay to be vulnerable and show our vulnerabilities to others, but of course, sometimes that is going to deal with the idea of ugly love. Sometimes we don't have happy endings, and that doesn't mean that you necessarily have to forsake love for all of future relationships, but we do that, right? We tend to put our walls up because of some things that might go bad in other relationships, and that can prevent us from moving forward in our most fulfilled way and living our best lives, so... The story deals a lot with that. How does trauma and fear prevent you from moving forward with someone intimately? And is that how you want to exist in your world? Or do you want to find a way to take down your walls a bit with the right person? Hey there, welcome back to Litmatch, Match, a podcast made to help writers find the best literary agent and business partner for their writing career, as well as write the best manuscript so that they can hook their dream literary agent. I'm Abigail Perry, a book coach and certified developmental editor who is eager to help writers learn how to blend passion with business so that they can achieve all of their writing, publishing endeavors, and dreams. Today's episode is a very special episode because not only is it a first chapter deep dive analysis of one of the extremely popular Colleen Hoover books, Ugly Love, but it's also with my special guest, Savannah Gilbo, who you probably have heard in the Harry Potter first chapter deep dive episodes. You might also have joined one of the virtual book club meetings hosted by Savannah and I. We run a virtual book club called Book Notes. And today's episode is actually a piece of our first book club meeting, which featured and analyzed Colleen Hoover's Ugly Love. This is only a small piece of the actual meeting. In these book club meetings, they're about two hours. We do a deep dive analysis of the entire book, as well as spotlight other writing essentials. But this clip is a snippet, a taste of that book club meeting. We did do a first chapter deep dive analysis like you have heard in the other first chapter deep dive episodes. The Harry Potter episodes are also featured on Savannah's amazing podcast, Fiction Writing Made Easy. So to be conscientious and always wanting to be fair to our listeners who did pay for the virtual book club meeting, we've only pulled the snippet, but I hope that you can enjoy the snippet and learn from it. And maybe you'll be interested in joining our next virtual book club meeting which will be sometime in March and we'll announce the book and the date for that soon. That being said, let's go ahead and listen to Savannah's and my analysis of the first chapter of Ugly Love and how it sets up expectations for not only the big picture story, but also models a well-structured scene. We like to look at these first chapters I'd like to say quickly because they are a great example of how you can speak to the big picture story as well as a well-structured scene in those first pages. As a summary, I'll go ahead and read through it quick, and then we will take that deep dive analysis. After a long drive up the coast of California, all Tate wants is to settle into her brother's apartment and get some sleep. Unfortunately, there's a drunk man sleeping outside her brother's door, blocking the entrance. Tate calls Corbin, her brother, and stays on the phone with him while she tries to ease past the man. He grabs her ankle, and she slams the door on him, only to realize she left her purse and suitcase in the hallway. Corbin calls his neighbor and friend, Miles, to assist Tate with getting her belongings in the room, but when Corbin calls Tate back, he asks her for a favor. Miles, his neighbor, is the one who is drunk outside the room, and Corbin asks her to let him crash on the couch. Tate is not happy about this, but her older brother is very protective of her, and she knows that Corbin would never put her in danger. So she helps Miles inside the apartment and onto the couch. Kate quickly realizes that Miles is attracted, but she's super confused by his behavior. He's drunk, apologizing, and crying profusely and calling her Rachel over and over again. She's uncomfortable, but she can tell that Miles is genuinely remorseful for whatever he did to this person, Rachel, and she feels bad for him. Because she's such a kind and empathetic person, Kate strokes his hair to help calm him down, and then retreats to her own bed once he has fallen asleep. So before we get into this first chapter deep dive analysis, we're going to use a few tools that we pull from a collection of Robert McKee's tools, from his his book Story, his craft book Story, as well as the story grid. And these are called the five commandments of storytelling. If you're unfamiliar with these, I will explain what each of these commandments is before giving my answer as to how I think they work in the first chapter, but that gives you kind of some resources that you can use. And if it's something that you want to explore more, we're always happy to answer questions or you can go by those books. Okay, so before you look at any first chapter, what's really important to do is you need to identify what a character's goal is. Because ultimately, if you know what the character's goal is, you can start to identify when conflict starts to get in the way. And of course, just like every story is about change, scenes need to be about change also. We're always thinking about how do we move the story forward? And through that movement, characters are forced to make decisions that will also identify and develop their characters because we learn most about who a character is through the actions that they take and the decisions that they that they, that they they face. So, the idea here of what is Tate's goal? Well, she at the beginning of the scene, she's tired, right? and she just wants to settle into her brother's apartment so that she can start her new her new life in San Francisco and focus on getting her masters. So she's a nurse, she's you know trying to get a degree that she can be in, in a nurse registered in in a and basically this idea here of she's very career focused and has really no interest initially. Or any romantic type of interest so we know in the beginning of the scene that's really our objective here is just to get in i'm tired get into this apartment and move in that then takes us into how the scene is actually structured so the first commandment out of the five commandments is called the inciting incident and the inciting incident is an unexpected disturbance So this unexpected disturbance is either causal, meaning that it is caused by a certain person, or it's coincidental in the sense that a coincidence just happens to cause the unexpected disturbance. And what we're looking for here is that this unexpected disturbance is either going to create a goal for a character and establish something that they're then going to set forth wanting and try to achieve by the end of the scene, or it's going to be some sort of unexpected disturbance that throws the character's initial goal off and they need to change their approach and how they proceed forward into the scene. So for the inciting incident in this scene, we came up with there's a drunk man outside of Corbin's apartment. And that means that there's actually quite a bit that happens before that inciting incident. But what we were looking for is always this idea here of what is that unexpected disturbance that really is going to get in the way of, of Kate's goal and how she's moving forward. So also kind of looking at this idea when I look at inciting incident in the five commandments, I'm looking for an unexpected disturbance that I think is going to basically build complications up to a turning point in a crisis, which we're going to get into next. And this is the one that reflected the most with us.
1: Right. And Abigail, can I interrupt you for a second? Because yeah. People might be wondering, why didn't we choose Tate meeting Cap or Dylan? Like, why is that not the inciting incident? And you kind of just answered it, but can you explain a little more?
0: hmm Yeah. So I think that, well, I mean, like even Saban and I were debating about this initially, and we came up with this because you have all of these, you have this idea of Dylan coming in and he feels very threatening. And it's interesting because the opening line of this first chapter deals with Cap, you know, it's not an actual, you were stabbed in the neck, but he makes kind of a, a, a line, a statement that puts us under guard a little bit, Right. Of course, that's a very friendly relationship with Kat. But when I do think that it creates some sort of tension or suspense when Dylan comes in and we know he's married and he's really, you know, really skeevy and checking out Tate in, in an uncomfortable and inappropriate way. But through all of this, that felt more like complications to me because ultimately what I was looking for when I was trying to examine big picture, small picture value ships was dealing along the ideas of what is going to be impacting the romantic story the most in this scene change. And for me, when we see Miles and it's this idea of now there's, it's again, her goal of getting into this apartment. This is something that she actually has to run in a way. Dylan, she can kind of, you know, push to the side for a bit. He's not pursuing her per se in that elevator. So when we get to this moment here of facing Miles outside of the apartment, she has nothing to do but approach this and try to handle it in some way. Did you have anything else to add, Savannah?
1: Yeah, I just want to say all that is totally what we talked about the other day. And also, if we had to label what this stuff is with Cap and Dylan, we might say it's exposition or it's set up for something that's coming later. Like we know Dylan's going to cause problems. We know Cap is going to be kind of her mentor slash friend. Like Abigail said, it also helps us set the tone. So all of this stuff is set up in exposition, but it's not, she's not going overboard with it. And then she gives us something. You know, part of the exposition is a handsome married man coming in the elevator, so it is on genre, but it also just sets up all the stuff for later. So,
0: yeah, absolutely, that's all. So then we move on to the turning point, and a turning point is an action or a revelation that forces a character into a crisis or a crisis decision. And I really like to, I, I like to personally call this one turning point. Sometimes you might hear it as turning point progressive complication. I like to shorten it because to me this is. Basically, this combined with the crisis is ultimately what determines a change in the scene. And because it forces the character into a crisis and a crisis is a decision that even if you decide to do nothing, there are consequences to your decision-making. So the turning point here, that action or revelation that forces T into a crisis decision is when Corbin asks her to bring Miles inside the apartment. And when Savannah and I were talking about this, I had said, you know, some people I like could easily see that maybe it would be the moment of when she leaves the keys outside of the apartment and she realizes and she has to go back and she calls Corbin and says, what do I have to do about that with the keys? And she thinks that she's going to have to basically, you know, call Corbin, Corbin asked her to bring Miles in. But out of all this, it felt more to me like, by this point, we know that Miles, although there's that moment where he grabs her ankle and we feel very uncomfortable with that, It doesn't give me the sense of something like this is a thriller type of story, right? It seems like Miles is pretty inconsolable in his in his misery right now, being out there and and super drunk. But it doesn't seem like he's actually going to pursue going after her in any way in the apartment. So it felt like more of the sense of when you have a turning point, Corbin asking to bring Miles inside the apartment. This actually was where I, I did it myself as a reader where you get this, ugh, I have to now handle this. I have to take care of this. So that more felt like something where Tate actually had to stop and consider something in the sense of what does she do with this next? And it impacted the love story as well. So that put her into a crisis decision of should Tate brings Miles into the apartment trusting Corbin's word or should she she leave Miles outside and risk Corbin being upset? Based on this, your crisis is then when you make your climax is the direct action that shows your crisis decision, how Tate responds to that crisis. And in this case, Tate brings him into the apartment. So she does take him in. And then our fifth commandment is the resolution. And the resolution is valuable because this allows the reader to breathe a bit after the, the structure of the scene. And it helps us to really see where the character is at mentally and externally and where they are in the scene. And this helps us in this way of it's a moving block into the next scene. So when that cause and effect really comes into play in this resolution. And in this case, this is when Tate situates herself in the apartment and she actually takes care of Miles pretty tenderly. Later in the story, it actually works as a great setup because when Miles talks about a moment that he really felt attracted and started to fall in love with Tate was actually this first encounter when she was stroking his hair and basically comforting him as he broke down about Rachel before she went off to bed. So she didn't bring him in and just ditch him. She brought him in and despite being exhausted, despite just wanting to to move in and not have any encounters with anything that's really going to cause her, you know, stress or delay, she does take the time to really comfort in a situation, Miles in a situation that he feels extremely upset. And then when she feels like he's okay, that's when she actually leaves and leaves him alone and knows that it's going to be okay until the morning.
1: Right, so a few things to interrupt here. One, we can see that she has accomplished that initial scene goal, which is to get in the apartment. She's tired, she wants to go to bed. So she has accomplished her goal, but there was conflict on the way. And part of, going back to the turning point, part of why we landed on this was because, like what Abigail said, where do we feel the conflict building to? And then what forces a decision? So the inciting incident is that first blip of conflict then the conflict builds and the, the conflict building here is her interaction with miles so it's you know him not being able to talk him grabbing her ankle him being in the way it's all these little blips of like what's hmm. really getting in the way of her getting in the apartment and then she has to make this choice bring him with me or not and we have some comments and questions i'm going to read to you abigail so yeah. aaron says i totally misread that during chapter one i thought it was going to be darker. This is kind of funny because I think this is just a Colleen Hoover thing. She writes romance and she writes these kind of twisty thrillers. So I don't know. She maybe can't help putting a flavor of that in, but it is kind of funny because on one hand, we are supposed to think like there's this guy Dylan in the elevator. Cap knows who she is. Like she's a 23 year old girl in this new city. We do want to feel concerned about her. And we're going to get into that later. But Felice has a question for you. She says, in order to identify the inciting incident, do you have to read the book first to get the big picture view?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I think it depends how you're analyzing. Are you trying to just analyze the scene structure or are you trying to analyze the big picture? Now, for an inciting incident, you don't need to read an entire book to be able to identify an inciting incident in a scene. That exists on a scene level, but it goes back to this idea of units of a story. So one thing that's really important is when we are revising, and I know we all do this, right? We revise that first chapter feverishly to the point of exhaustion. And I think that it's this idea here of your first chapter has a lot of importance in setting up expectations for the big picture. So while the big picture, we I think as an author, you always need to understand what the story is, the, the content genre that you're using to write this story and helping you make executive decisions when you're deciding how you're going to place certain elements and how you're gonna use that to speak to the big picture. And as a reader, We have a lot as a first chapter of how are we feeling engaged? And, you know, it's really interesting, Erin, when you're saying that you totally misread that in chapter one, when I read the chapter the first time, I think I just immediately had my guard up and I don't know, but it was one of those things, like I said, the first line with Cap that made me feel a little bit intense. Like there was definitely a lot of suspense for me there. Dylan creeped me out. So I was kind of anticipating what's going to happen with Dylan. When is he going to show up again? And then Miles was drunk, and when he grabbed the ankle in particular, I felt like, ooh, there's a lot of aggression going on here. But ultimately, what's so interesting is that this first chapter does a really amazing job at developing Tate's character, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. And I think that while there are these elements of suspense and these secrets that we that are really going to get us to turn the page... Ultimately, as an insanity instant, you just need to ask yourself when you're writing, what do I think is going to be an unexpected disturbance that throws off my character's goal? And how can I use that to build towards a crisis? When I'm looking at a scene, I'm always asking myself what I think is the most valuable p- part of the commandments, really. I see the turning point and the crisis is inseparable. They, the turning point causes the crisis question. And ultimately, that is what develops the character and that's what moves the scene forward. So then I ask myself, okay, if I can really figure out what the turning point in crisis is, what would be an inciting incident that builds to that? Does that make sense?
1: Right. Yeah. And it's sometimes it's fun to think about the inciting incident as a mini turning point. It's like what is that first thing that you know knocks open the door or knocks over the domino that eventually is going to fall into the turning point. And there's there's other stuff happening too, but. We chose this, we'll go to the next slide. We chose this to focus on because we do know the full story and we know that it's a romance. So this is a big, there's a big focus on them meeting. And what has changed, you could say many things. Tate has gotten to the apartment. She's safe. She was outside. Now she's inside. She didn't know anybody here. Now she knows some people here. But the main thing is that Miles and Tate have now met. So you want to go more on that, Abigail? Yeah. For the
0: change, the value shift, mean?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So and just I, like why why we focus on this more than anything.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to address a quick question in the chat I see from Whitney who asks, should all of these pieces happen in the first chapter and should they happen in every chapter? And my recommendation, and if you're speaking to the commandments there, I do think that there are scenes very rarely that maybe exist that don't have five commandments. But ultimately, I think that depends on what are you defining as a scene, right? Because sometimes chapters and scenes aren't the same thing. So I do think that there should be five commandments in every scene. But so, the way that we analyze this, sometimes people, I think, get locked in the idea of that a scene has to be one place and one time. And when you use these commandments, at least like this way of analyzing stories in this way, you can see how commandments work towards an inciting incident, towards a revolution, all driven, of course, by that turning point crisis climax. That doesn't necessarily have to happen in one chapter. Sometimes chapters have multiple scenes. Sometimes, and I've done this together on the podcast before, on both of our podcasts before we analyzed the first chapter of Chamber of Secrets, and it actually, we came up to the conclusion that there was one scene across two chapters, and it's just a matter of finding the commandments there. So I do think that you want to have five commandments in every scene, but just keep in mind that a chapter in a scene is a different definition.
1: Right, and I put a blog post in the chat for you guys if you want to look. I wrote about why we want to look at it this way. I think it's a lot easier to go through your book, outlining it, writing it and editing it in scenes and then moving on to chapters once you know it works. But also, we're going to we're going to look at kind of the feeling of each section later and we can talk about how many chapters make up each section if that's interesting, just to see cuz Abigail and I were talking last night, some of the sections feel fast. Some feel mm-hmm. longer, not necessarily a bad way, but sometimes the word counts per scene or chapter surprise us. Sometimes the length surprises us. So we can go into that all later. But yes, when in doubt, like Abigail said, include
0: these five commandments unless you have a very good reason to veer off course. Mm-hmm. And definitely go check out that blog that Savannah just shared. I share that with almost every writer that I talk to because I think that's a really amazing way of structuring scenes for chapters. So that was, that's really helpful and we'll probably answer a lot of your questions. Yeah, so and for, another-
1: Oh, sorry, Abigail. Ahead. Another for you guys in the chat, if you analyzed the scene or thought about it in this way before we talked, did you have a similar breakdown? Because part of, I want to go back to the question of how do we know if something's an inciting incident? And I think as long as you got to the conclusion that, you know, the peak of the conflict is somewhere around where Corbin asks Tate to bring Miles into the apartment and she does, then you're seeing the same thing we are. So, you know, sometimes it doesn't really matter what the nuances of these little Mm -hmm. details are, but
0: yeah. Yeah. And I think that's important that you bring that up, Samana, because... These are tools to help you start to understand if you if something's lacking really in your chapters, right? Most, most readers are not going to analyze your stories at this level. This is something, these are some tools that might help you start to identify if something feels off. If it doesn't feel like there's change or character development, this might be the first place to start with the structure and did the structure successfully move the story forward? And if it doesn't, then something to ask yourself, okay, like, where did I feel like it was off? Was there no one, was the pace really slow because there wasn't an inciting incident? Or did it feel like all of a sudden it just jumped into the scene and there wasn't something building? My goal, at least, is never to get to the same exact carbon copy answers with someone when we're analyzing stories, but to be able to come to the same conclusion and defend, yes, I do think the scene moved forward. And yes, I do think the character developed because of this dilemma that was made, because of the crisis decision that that they had and how they answered it. And that's more important to me than coming up with the perfect, you know, copy and paste answers.
1: Yeah, right. And Eileen, I see your comment in the chat. You said, I thought the climax was Miles grabbing her ankle. The feeling you had while reading that, I think that's your turning point radar. So I just wanted to throw that out because sometimes we really feel those turning points and the climax is kind of a natural result of that. The decision that's caused by the turning
0: point. So I just wanted to point mm-hmm. that out because that's kind of fun. Definitely. Back to the value shift. This is the whole idea of if we believe that the five commandments are there, and that there is a movement and story because the character has made a decision, we then examine the idea of what actually changed in this scene, and we can look at change in a few layers. There's a literal change. Where did Tate literally change from? And you know, that's the most literally literally the words that you use it's just something you could say she goes from not in the apartment to in the apartment that's a literal change there is movement we move place location right then you can ask yourself the idea of character change and character change is really important because it's tied to the character's wants and what's going on with that so how did t as a character change from the beginning to the end And in a way, I mean, she goes from this very, I want nothing to do other than maybe Cap. She likes Cap. I don't have any interest in dealing with men. I just want to get into this apartment and go to sleep to actually taking care of Miles in his state of real trauma. He's obviously clearly upset. So you could say something like the character goes from... Let's say, I don't think she's quite hard, like a hard personality, but I do think there's some sort of change there in the sense of going from harder to softer and how she's yeah. giving people the time of day. And notice that I didn't give perfect words there. And yeah. that's you what know, I
1: always like to say. Abigail, Stephanie just wrote something in the chat. I, she didn't think her, she let her guard down as much as compassion took over. So yep. it's almost like guarded to compassionate or yeah. however you want to say it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I just, I think that's great that we're coming up with different words because yeah, it's I, I will say when I started doing scene analysis, I exhausted myself hours and hours trying to figure out the perfect word to communicate what I thought the change was. And I realized that I was shackling myself with trying to figure out the perfect words. And instead I just needed to maybe even just, just start by describing Because the point is, if you can't describe in any way that there's some sort of significant change and that that change is basically on the same value spectrum, if you were to say, like you wouldn't mix something like exhausted with sad or something like that, like exhausted and energized or something is more online at the same value scale. If you can't do that, then there's probably something off. But it's not about finding the perfect words. Instead, it's about just identifying that there is a significant change in the story in whatever way you might describe that. Yeah. And also,
1: oh, sorry, Abigail. Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. All right. I was gonna say, so you keep saying significant change, and I want to give an example of what would not be significant. So let's say that she she didn't even meet Miles. She just went and there was some drama with Cap, there was some drama with Dylan, maybe there's another guy, who knows? And Mm -hmm. none of these people became the love interest. That would maybe be an issue for a romance novel because we want to bring those characters together as soon as possible. And mm-hmm. I think Colleen Hoover did it in a pretty interesting way here. So that's what we mean by significant is does it touch that central storyline?
0: And, and that's this case, what romance. Oh, yeah, exactly. And that's what brings us to what we have at the change on in the slide here. What has changed in this scene? We said strangers to acquaintances because that last change and the change that you should be able to basically identify in every scene. It might not always be as evident and on the page as this scene is. It's an opening chapter, so it's going to probably be a little bit more evident on, this, on the on the page. But ultimately, it should speak to the big picture genre of the story, the content genre. And you always want to be able to defend why the scene basically exists and impacts that big picture value shift, the main value shift for the story in some way. So, you know, sometimes... as A more obvious change might be more an internal change, but you still need to be able to defend why it has purpose and how it impacts the main genre that you're working with. And we'll talk about genre in a little bit. Right. Okay. Okay. We will now move into, we've looked at the scene structure of that first chapter. Now let's talk about how that speaks to the big picture of the story and what we're going to dive into even deeper when we get into the acts. So the idea here of big picture, I like to pull seven questions. These are seven key questions from agent and author Polly Lene's book, The Writer's Guide to Beginnings. She's really great at breaking down content in, in, in a practical way. And this, this book helped me a lot understand what I really need to be looking for, for beginnings. And out of that, one of the chapters in this book, she comes up with these seven questions. And this is what I like to see on, D, on a line level, as well as content level, how it is giving set, and setting up expectations for the reader for what story we're going to get. So the first question is, what kind of story is it? And when it's a what kind of story is it question, that basically is dealing with the idea of genre. First of all, we like to specify, Savannah and I always like to talk about this with people. There's a difference between a commercial genre and a content genre. A commercial genre is used for sales and marketing. If you were to go into your local bookstore, there are going to be aisles that are designed by genre. And if you go on Amazon, certain stories rank for certain genres of in categories. And all of this is used for marketing appeal. Content genres are what story type some, something is. The idea here of does a certain story have specific conventions that are common in all of these types of stories? And Ugly Love is a contemporary romance novel. So if you were going to a bookstore or if you go on Amazon or Goodreads or whatever it is. That's, that's probably going to be that commercial genre. It's going to be something in that realm. And, and then for the content genre, we want to look at what are the main genres that actually give the story substance and, and fulfill conventions and obligatory moments or obligatory scenes on a story type level. So the content genre, we deal dominantly with a love external genre. It's a love courtship to be specific. So two characters who are courting one another and or trying not to court one another, but doing (laughs) it anyway. And then the worldview story is the dominant internal arc. So we're looking at a worldview maturation story. And if you've ever listened to Savannah and I in on any of our platforms, you will know that she and I are both very, very passionate about making sure that there is an equal parts internal and external story. I really think that the internal story speaks to the character arc and we will care more about the story, what happens to them if we care about the characters. And then the external story is plot. We also need something to conflict and challenge that character in order to change. Sometimes not every character changes. And in that case, usually other characters around them change because of the events that happen and how the story moves forward. Samantha, do you have anything to add to that or you feel good? I feel
1: good. I think that was a great description. We're going to talk about the character arcs later. So I'm going to put a
0: pin in my thought. Okay. Number two deals mostly with plot. And the question is, what is the story really about? Yes, this is a love story. We know that this is going to be a will they or will they not get together type of romance. But what's it actually about? What's going to become more than just what happens on the page? How do we start to dig into why do we care about what happens on the page? And in this case, Ugly Love is a book about coming to terms with the past and overcoming your fears. It shows us that it's okay to be afraid. It shows us that it's okay to be vulnerable and show our vulnerabilities to others. But of course, sometimes that is going to deal with the idea of ugly love. Sometimes we don't have happy endings. And that doesn't mean that you necessarily have to forsake love for all of future relationships. But we do that, right? We tend to put our walls up because of some things that might go bad in other relationships. And that can prevent us from moving forward in our most fulfilled way and living our best lives. So the story deals a lot with that. How does trauma and fear prevent you from moving forward with someone intimately? And is that how you want to exist in your world? Or do you want to find a way to Take down your walls a bit with the right person. Right. And so, thinking
1: of this idea of ugly love, too, think about how far this spreads throughout the story. I'm thinking about Dylan, who has a wife that he obviously cheats on. That's not a very pretty love. Cor- Corbin doesn't want Tate to fall in love with anybody. So, he's kind of putting walls up for her because of fear. Obviously, Miles and Tate have their own issues. Cap has issues with his, I don't know if it's maybe issues, but his wife has passed on. Right. So, He's kind of giving us that glimmer of hope, but everybody touches on ugly love or the idea of what ugly love is or the opposite of love, ugly love is. So everything ties back really nicely to yeah. the title and the point of the story.
0: Yeah. Aaron says, to be honest, or I thought, I thought that it was a love story, but it wasn't Tate and Miles' love story. It was Miles and Rachel, where Tate was just dragged along for the ride without any context of the story she was actually part of. This is so interesting, Erin. I talked about this with Savannah a lot. And for a long time, we'll probably talk about this. I'll put a pin in it for a little bit later. But for most of the novel, I was rooting for Rachel and Miles. I was really wanting them. I felt like that was the love story. And then, of course, something shifted. So I'll put a pin in that. But I I was with you for a while with rooting for Miles and T. And I think that's actually really interesting to have. And really important, actually, in any romance to have a triangle, a love triangle going on in some way.
1: We're going to talk about that later too, but I didn't root for Rachel and Miles necessarily, but I was, I was worried once that came in the picture, I was Mm -hmm. like, oh, great. How is this going to affect the main relationship, which we'll talk about when we get to triangles, but yep. Okay. So let me just take a pause because we're about what? 45 minutes in. Is everybody okay? Is this too much information? Are we going too fast? Let us know in the chat. Samantha, I see you weren't rooting for Rachel, but you felt stressed too. So yeah, (laughs) glad we're on the same page.
0: Okay. Everybody says they're good. All right. Good. Okay. We'll keep going. Okay. So question number three deals with point of view and point of view is really important in this story in particular. The question deals with who is telling the story and in Ugly Love's case, we have alternating first person POV. So it's mostly Tate and Savannah actually clocked out percentages so she can defend it's mostly Tate. But then there's also Miles. Now, the trick here is that Tate's point of view is taking place in the present. So there's a lot of suspense and tension in the sense of what's going to happen with them. Are they or are they not going to get together? And Miles's point of view takes place six years ago. So what's brilliant about the placement of, and I, maybe it's just because I love dual timelines, but Miles' question for readers, at least like for me when I was reading this, was why, why is he like this? What has happened to him? So in some stories with point of view, they'll give you the answer right away. And the story is about how did that come to be? And in this story, it deals a lot with that secret of what went on with Rachel and Miles and how does that impact it? And you know, because we're getting these alternating point of views, if it's a good story, they will dovetail together eventually. So eventually we know that a secret from the past has to be revealed and come to ter- come to awareness in some way for T in order to either find some sort of intimate relationship in any way that they can move forward and, you know, either become closer or, you know, have that tear it apart. So definitely that. And then there's actually one chapter that's Rachel's point of view, which is chapter 37.
1: Right. And so like Abigail said, I went down the rabbit hole on this last night because I wanted to know, um, and I was up until almost three in the morning because I had to add up all these chapters. but. (laughs) I was surprised that Miles's point of view, the word count only represents about 25% of the total. So I was wondering, did you guys feel that it, like, did it feel more even to you? Because it felt more even to Abigail and I until we went and did the math. So I'm curious, let me know in the chat. Abigail, I don't know if you want to tackle this question from Sharon. She says, Uh Miles's point of view takes place six years ago, but it's still in present tense. Why? Why?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think tense it really just depends on what you're going for. Sometimes the tense, you know, can impact someone on just how they like to write. But I think the idea of present tense to it's with past, you can still write in present tense because for Miles or any time really you're actually writing in in a past tense, in I'm sorry, in a past timeline, it's happening for that character in that character's story at that moment. So we're flashing back to 6 years ago but we're learning Miles's story as it goes forward, right? Right, right. Did the present tense bother you at all, Savannah? I don't, it didn't
1: bother me. It did not. And I actually have somewhere later in this slide deck, I have a note on that because there was a question about unfolding Miles's backstory and why does this work and why did she do it this way? And part of what I said later on was that it sir his his storyline does two things it informs us as backstory that's woven into the main storyline but it also is a real story that's unfolding in real time so it is a dual timeline it's not a flashback it's you know if this makes sense it's unfolding right. in real time on the page right, right. Um, and then the other thing sorry abigail the other thing i noticed was that his chapters i see some of you guys talking about the formatting that was interesting but it also showed us that his chapters were written more in summary than in scene except for the main moments so you probably noticed there'd be like months that have gone by in three paragraphs and then they zoom in on one moment and do those five commandments Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. so just
1: interesting to note yeah but I'm curious I do see some some opinions but how did you guys feel about the just the formatting. I know you are all saying you like the dual point of view. Tara saying she kind of liked how it read like poetry in his his chapters. I liked how at the end when he, you know, got his happy happily ever after with Tate, it went back to that type of style. You know, it's funny cuz I feel like this is one of those things where it's like we all wish we could do this, but she's calling Huber and she has all these accolades we looked at earlier, so like of course she can pull off this amazing stylistic stuff, mm-hmm. right? And Sharon, Sharon didn't like it, so that's okay. You know, not all of us are going to like it. I thought it was fun, but wasn't make or break for me. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Great. Okay. So we'll Great. go to the next slide. You're so the to- next
0: question, question number four, deals with character, and the question is, which character should readers care about the most? So we're again, we're thinking about, we're still looking at the first chapter here, and how is that setting ex- setting up expectations for who we should care about the most? So, on that first chapter, I really feel like I care about Tate the most. I'm concerned a little bit for what's happening around her. She's pretty strong willed and independent. So, I have pretty good faith that she's going to be okay at the end of the scene. But there is that tension that we've talked about before. And then she's going to have to bring in this really drunk guy who is saying Rachel's name. Now, for Miles, it was always interesting to me because when I, was reading the first chapter, seeing Miles outside and just being drunk and in the way that I was very much in Tate's mindset where I was like, "Ugh, nuisance. We just want to get past this. Why? She's already dealt with this other skeevy, like really skeevy guy. And now she's going to have to confront this other one. But the second that Miles is super vulnerable and crying, despite saying Rachel's name, you don't really know his story yet. So you don't know, like, did he what is he responsible? Did he deserve whatever breakup this is? But he does seem genuinely sad and apologetic for whatever has happened. And that's where I started to care about Miles because clearly whatever he's gone through, he's extremely remorseful for it. And I feel bad for him in that situation. It seems like this wasn't belligerent so much as real trauma and grief. So that's something that made me really start to care about Miles even though I felt like my first inclination was to care about Tate most, based on the first chapter.
1: Right, and so the other thing I wanted to do here is talk about, like, how does this chapter show us kind of what they're all about? So this first little bullet point here is, yes, this is all the setup of who Tate is and what she wants and all that, right? Sorry if you can hear my dogs, there must be a delivery. But the her goal as the one of the main characters in this romance story After she meets Miles, she wants to be in a committed relationship with him despite pretending she's okay with just physical intimacy, right? Her inner obstacle that we're going to see her work through is her kindness, her loving nature that is both a strength and a weakness depending on the situation, but it makes it difficult for her to establish boundaries, right? So this is, I wanted to set up this framework of what is her goal from the, kind of from two lenses, one, what does she want? And then one- what is her purpose in the story as the heroine and then what is her internal obstacle and we'll see how this changes over time Mm -hmm. miles we have the same setup so he's you know this is the first line is what he is he's a pilot he's corbin's brother he went to school with his role in the story or his goal once he meets tate is to not fall in love with her because he wants purely a physical relationship because of this inner obstacle so He wants to keep people distant. He fixates on trying to control situations, not just his own emotions, but other people's as well. And we saw this happen with Rachel. We're gonna see it happen with Tate. So I put these slides here because I wanna show how we can get flavors of all of this in the first chapter.
0: Right. Do you agree, Abigail? Yeah, I I really agree. And I think that Tate's empathy, like you pointed out, that's one of the big things. And I'm actually seeing some comments in the chat of people who didn't connect or or failed to yeah, find a reason to like Tate and Miles. And I will agree that I got irritated with them at certain stages of the story. Sometimes in their relationship, it did feel like, oh, like, what are you doing? You're going down the rabbit hole that you know you shouldn't go down. But at the same time, I always found them really relatable because of what grounded me into who they were as people. And I did feel like they were genuinely good people who I wanted to have happy endings for. So what did you think, Savannah? Did you have any moments where you thought they were unlikable or anything that you got annoyed with?
1: It's funny because I think I kind of suspended the disbelief a little bit and I was totally fine. Like Samantha said it in the chat. She thought back to how her and her husband were when they met at 18. They were cringy. They were obsessed. I kind of let it be that. So it didn't bother me as much. But in hindsight, I totally agree with what you guys are saying. Yeah. Yeah, Jennifer says, Colleen Hoover is really good at nailing the uncomfortable, cringy part. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, you know,
0: I talked about this with Savannah a lot too, because this is, for me, when I was reading this, I had to let go of this, um, of basically it's, we, it's not trying to be a literary masterpiece. And I think that's one of those things where it's like, you're immersed in the characters and the story is engaging and moves us forward. But for me, it wasn't going to be on my top 10 books. And I think that like, that's because like for me with my stories that I gravitate towards, I look for a little bit more of, you know, I guess like a literary appeal of, of some sort. But once I let that go, I could have fun with it. And then it was funny because when I was telling Savannah when I what I thought about it at the end of it, I told her, but I can't stop thinking about these characters. So it was really fascinating to me that, for chunks of the story, I could be like, okay, this is entertaining, this is fun, but it doesn't—it's not something that I think is going to stick with me as much as some other stories that I've really loved. Yet at the end, I still continued to think about T and Miles, and I really enjoyed the happy ending. And for me, the turning point of that was at chapter twenty-seven, which we'll talk about later. When I when I anticipated what the plot twist was going to be, but I hear yeah, I hear you. Yeah, who everyone out there who is thinking that there were moments there are cringy moments. And like Savannah, you said, like that's when people are young, there's going to be more of that, right?
1: Yeah. And it's so funny because Sharon said what you just said about it, not trying to be a literary masterpiece helps. And I think that's, it's so true that we need to look at what is this trying to be? Because like Abigail said, it is not a literary masterpiece. However, look at those numbers we looked at earlier and there is something to learn obviously here. So- it's, I don't know, it's pretty fun to dig in, pretty amazing, despite all these things we're kind of picking apart, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, okay, next slide. Okay. Okay.
0: So question number five deals with setting. And the question is, where and when does the story take place? And readers need to understand story setting, because this helps ground us in the story and what is going on. And you always want to be using setting as a way of basically putting your character in situations. Now, One thing with the setting, it's interesting is like, I thought to myself, you know, we're set in San Francisco. She's moved to San Francisco. So we know we're here and we know that for the majority of it, we spend a lot of time in the apartments together. There are times where they go to Tate's parents' house for Thanksgiving. They go shopping one time. There are there. There's moments where they actually go up on the to the pool instead of staying in the apartments. But a lot of the story takes place specifically in the apartments. And part of that probably is because they're having the secret relationship for a lot of it, and they keep it contained. But I think the most interesting part of the setting is that it's really pivotal that they that she places Miles directly across from Tate's apartment and putting them in close counters like that. I think that it feeds the sexual chemistry. And really, even after things start to go south, there's heart, there's, they, they can't really avoid each other, you know, hence also like building up to the moment where Tate needs to move out. So it's this idea of you can really feel that tension and that sexual tension on a chem, in a chemistry way. And, you know, and ugh, I can't believe this is what I have I to know. deal with type of emotion in the sense of when things start to get bad. So putting them into a close, restricted, living space i think is crucial to the setting even more so than the specific city the specific city didn't tend to play you know big reasons as to where it was but i do think where they were placed and it did what do you think samana
1: yeah i think all that is is totally spot on and i was thinking okay i might wonder why is this a good setting for the opening chapter and hmm. thinking about it it's like well literally almost the entire story takes place a in this apartment building but b between their, like each of their apartments, right? And so it, it kind of is the perfect opening. It wouldn't make sense to meet them at a park because we'd never go there again. Right. Exactly. So just interesting to think about. Okay. Here so you question
0: go. Num- question number six is emotion. It focuses on emotion. And the, the question is, is how should readers feel about what's happening? With the opening chapter of this book, we want to create this, again, this feeling of a driving emotion that's going to carry throughout the book. Now, if we're dealing, we talked about there are some other emotions. We feel a a variety, at least I felt a variety of emotions when reading this first chapter. We feel a sense of camaraderie and, you know, comfort, I think, when she's talking to Cap without with the exception of that first line. But you can see it's this nice, kind relationship. Then Dylan comes in and we don't feel safe with him in that apartment with, with him in that elevator. They're trapped in this very small place. All he's doing is looking at her cleavage. He's thinking, oh, she's checking me out. And she actually reads that from him and is and she's more so thinking on the lines of, I think that you're disgusting because you're married. So it's really interesting. They're totally misreading each other in that way. And then we get, of course, to the meat of that scene in that deals with the encounters between Miles and T. So when we're looking for how should really readers feel about what's happening, Miles is clearly devastated and T is comforting him. And that's what really with me as the heart of what this scene was happening. And I think for me with emotions as a reader, when I was feeling this, I was curious as to what was going to happen with this couple, especially knowing that this was a romance that we can assume these are the two that are going to have a connection and start to build a relationship together. And I'm worried about Rachel. You know, like right away, I'm already worried about this triangle that doesn't even exist yet. And I think that there's that. I'm worried about Miles and what he's going through. At the same time, I don't know Miles very well. So I don't know how how much to read into his situation. But I do think as an emotion overall, we can sense that there is some sort of spark that is flying here when she decided to take care of him. And through that tenderness, through that action, I want to see what's going to happen going forward and whether or not this disastrous first encounter can be, you know, revived or not.
1: Yeah, so there's a spark, there's trauma, there's, you know, we're just, we're concerned, we're curious. And those are two great things to evoke in an opening chapter. And like you said, we're wondering about this couple specifically. So
0: win-win. And then question number seven deals with stakes. And stakes are really important. I'm sure you hear this all the time. Raise the stakes, raise the stakes. You have to have stakes in the story. What are the stakes going forward? So how are stakes established in this first chapter? And what can we anticipate they are going to be going forward? So stakes for a character. I like to spell this out. Something that I pulled from James Scott Bell, who is a craft writer. I think it's his revision and self-editing book. But basically he talks about Three levels of stakes, psychological stakes, physical stakes, and professional stakes. So on the most general scale, that's what we're talking about when it comes to stakes. But psychological stakes sometimes are the dominant stake of the story. If you have an emotionally driven story, that might be the dominant stake at hand. It also deals with really the character arcs. when we talked about worldview as a content genre, that's that stake that's always going to be existing. The physical stake sometimes can be like a life or death situation or it could just be physical stakes in some sort of way. Is there going to be physical harm or not? However you would phrase that. And then professional stakes, if you're dealing with like a, I know, a business type of story, business performance type of story, that's usually gonna be a dominating stake. In most stories, those three stakes are combined. Usually stakes, usually a story has at least two of those stakes, if not all three, but out of them, there's a dominating stake. So what is the stake that actually drives the story? And you can link what that dominating stake is Back to a content genre and the value shift that you're facing here. So in ugly love, it's clear that Miles needs to heal from whatever he's causing, what's causing him so much grief. So he has psychological stakes going on there as a character. And from T, she's going to be pulled into this place of, you know, severe vulnerability. And we're a little bit worried about where she is psychologically. She's very career-driven in this first chapter. We know that there are psychological stakes there in the sense of dealing with romantic interest versus career, can you or both, or do you have to divide the two? So that's going on. Out of all of this though, I do think that the dominating stake deals with a lump story. So the dominating value is, is, and that's the dominating value shift is too, when I say dominating the main value shift of the story, the main thing that's driving the story. So in that case, the stakes are, are you going to gain an intimate relationship authentically and meet in a meaningful way or are you going to suffer severe heartbreak? Heartbreak, or you know, in the worst case, a you know dangerous relationship, which isn't really what Miles and Tate are going through. Although we have to be careful with the emotions, because for a long time there is a lot of psychological stakes at play. The closer they get together, the closer that they become, and whether or not they're kidding themselves and how far they're going to go with that. So you can really see in the story the psychological stakes and the love, physical stakes are absolutely prevalent in everything. And then I would say professional stakes actually do exist there based on T in her nursing career. What do you think, Savannah?
1: Yeah, and we know Miles gets his promotion. So that's not technically a stake, but it still touches on that thread there. Mm -hmm. So I like what you just said too about this. It's like, are they gonna open up to true love by healing that inner wound or are they gonna let fear win? And in the next section, when we talk about the structure of the plot, We're going to see how each section of the story makes them face this same question over and over. Mm -hmm. So let us know if you guys have any questions right now on this micro analysis, because if not, we're going to just go right ahead and go into the plot analysis. If anybody needs a potty break, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Felice says the stakes and taking the physical part of the relationship into something deeper. So yeah, I think that's what you were talking about. Physical stakes, right, Abigail?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that when people hear physical stakes, the, the most obvious of physical stakes goes to action genres in the, in the case of life or death. But that's, for me, love is a physical stake. And I've flirted with that in a lot of conversations because so much of love, love is emotional right? Love is emotional actually. But I think that in this case, we're dealing a lot. Yeah. Like Laura said, I mean, pregnancy is pretty physical. And that's, I think think that's true. Like we're dealing with physical, like, I mean, and a lot for Tate and Miles specifically, the whole thing is emotion isn't allowed to be in this hookup, you know, it's supposed to be purely physical. So it's kind of dealing with that physical, but that physical stake, at least for story story substance, isn't interesting without the psychological Companion. So for me, they really have to work together. But I do think that if I were to say, there's, here's my level, this is psychological, this is physical, maybe depending on the characters, it's going to be, you know, different. But I think that we're focusing on physical stakes, psychological stakes. What do you think, Savannah? Do you think psychological more or physical more? I
1: think for Miles, we could say psychological. Yeah. I think for Tate, maybe we're
0: even. I don't know. I think we're even for Tate. So that's where it's like the idea here uh, of, her, it start, I think it starts, what's so interesting is it starts out so physically driven, right? but the whole part of it is that you're getting yourself into something that you know could cause psychological downfall. So what I think the big question here is would Tate, when she leaves Miles and goes to the apartment at the very end, would she have been okay? Would she have gotten over Miles and been okay if they didn't redeem their relationship in the end? What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I don't know. And I was just going to say, because if she's not, that could lead to professional downfall. It could lead to all different kinds of things. So yeah, I see Fern in the chat. You're saying physical professional stakes. They do have sex in the car where Tate works. So they're risking that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lori says the physicality of being with Miles creates
0: psychological stakes. So yeah. And And I think 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 it's all like when you're thinking about stakes here, because the idea here is if they don't get together, right, if this was a cautionary tale, and they didn't get together at the end unless like it drastically was different based on how it was, how it evolved. The idea here is that the consequence of this could be, you know, if you were to play the what if game, like you said, Tate could have, suffer psychological trauma that could lead, that could impact her career. So she could lose her job, the whole reason that she went to San Francisco. And of course, I'm dramatizing this with no evidence of what happens because we get a happy ending. But the right. idea here is thinking about like where... Tate could really fall into the place of Miles where she closes herself off to everyone and become another version of Miles, which is really interesting because when you look at characters, especially when you look at antagonists and protagonists of each other, they tend to be shadows. Like there tends to be like a shadow element of the other characters. So Tate could become Miles if she fell into a place, a dark place of ugly love. And Miles, if he can overcome his psychological stakes. Can become a better version like Tate. Right.
1: And it's kind of fun. We'll look at this later, but it's like they almost tame each other in a way because Tate learns to have boundaries like Miles and she learns to be vulnerable like Miles was in a way. And also Miles learns things from Tate.
0: Mm-hmm. And that brings us to the end of that clip from the virtual book club meeting featuring the book Ugly Love by Colleen Hoover. Thank you so much for coming back for another episode of Lit Match. I hope that you're enjoying these first chapter deep dive analysis episodes. And I cannot wait to bring you more interviews with literary agents, author interviews paired with writing lessons, and first chapter deep dive analysis episodes that can help you find the literary agent who is your dream agent for your business and writing career, as well as Learn how to master your writing craft so that you can polish the best version of your manuscript and have a great shot at hooking your literary agent. As always, I am so incredibly grateful to anyone who takes time to rate and review this show. Doing so signals to iTunes that this podcast matters and helps me reach more writers like you who are stuck in the query process, confused or lost or overwhelmed about finding a literary agent, or might be just stuck in the writing craft itself and not sure what to do with their current work in progress. You are what makes this podcast matter because the work that you are doing matters. If you have signed with a literary agent, please reach out and let me know. I am cheering you on. And I cannot wait to hear when you sign with the best literary agent for your business and writing career and celebrate your book when it comes out.